Welcome back to the Carnivore Yogi Podcast. This is episode 17, and today I spoke with Dr. Will Cole, who is a functional medicine doctor, as well as a multi-time author. His most recent book is called Intuitive Fasting, and I think it's a great book. I will definitely link all that in the information section below for you guys of this episode. But the really cool thing about Dr. Will Cole is that he's super open-minded. He sees patients for up to 10 hours a day in his telemedicine clinic. And anytime a practitioner still sees patients on a very regular basis, I really do value their opinion. There are a lot of doctors out there and even in the carnivore community and keto community especially that they do a lot of research, they write articles, but they don't actually talk to patients. And I think if you are not talking with patients and you're not working with them on some sort of a regular basis, you're gonna lose touch with what actually works and what doesn't work. I really think that's a a great big possibility. And so that's another reason I started this podcast is I really wanna get to all sides of things, talk to all kinds of different people that maybe you guys are not used to hearing from. And as more of a plant-based kind of a person like Dr. Will Cole is, I think that it was a great conversation that we actually had about carnivore and about how some people may be able to actually do carnivore long-term and be okay, which is not something that I was really expecting him to say, but I did really enjoy this conversation and I hope you guys do as well. At this point, I feel like most people know that antibiotics wipe out all the good bacteria in your gut. Not always all the bad, but definitely it wipes your gut bacteria out. And so I think a lot of us already know this, and I've actually consulted with a lot of people who have taken an antibiotic and it has triggered an autoimmune disorder of some sort. So this is something that I think a lot more people have awareness about. But did you know that taking medications like antivirals, metformin, and there are a few others, that can also really negatively impact your gut bacteria as well. So I am really excited about my partnership with Thrive, and that is, the link is www.trythrive.com backslash carnivore yogi to get 50% off of your kit. And, you know, while I don't really agree with a lot of their food recommendations, this is one thing I do want to specify for you guys. Sometimes if you're eating a lot of one thing, they will tell you to avoid that and never eat it. I don't agree with that. I agree with a little bit more rotation. So if you're rotating meats, um, I think that you're much better off than just sticking to one thing all the time. But the thing about Thrive is that they will analyze your gut bacteria for you and then the really great thing that I'm, I'm hoping people get help with is this gut bacteria of getting a personalized probiotic. I have a lot of people who have tried probiotics in the past and they're extremely skeptical. I was one of those people included that I would take a probiotic and I would get horrible gas and bloating. So I just was like, nope, probiotics are not for me. So when I started working with Thrive back in October, I was really excited to try their probiotic and I did not have a reaction. I've actually talked to a lot of my clients that have had the same thing. So one thing you know you may not be thinking about is have I been on medication of any kind in the last year or so or even more than that in the last few years that could really be negatively impacting your weight, your sleep, your digestion and getting a customized probiotic could be extremely helpful for you 
in fixing some of those issues. So thank you to Thrive for sponsoring today's podcast. Again, you can get 50% off using my code, which will be in the information section below for you guys. It is www.trythrive.com backslash carnivore yogi to get 50% off. And thank you guys for listening. I hope you do enjoy this episode. All right, guys, thank you so much for coming back and tuning in today. I'm really excited about my guest. I have been following him for a long time. He's written several books. Uh, The most recent one that he wrote is Intuitive Fasting. This is Dr. Will Cole. He actually sees patients. So this is a really valuable thing for a lot of you guys as well, a practitioner that sees patients as well. And I'm just excited to talk with him about his new book and and all things diet, fasting, all the things. So thank you, Dr. Will Cole, for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. So first your, your new book, I know that and I've listened to you on a lot of other podcasts talk about this, but intuitive fasting, um, how many people from the intuitive eating movement have started trolling you now? <laughs> first of all, can I say that I really appreciate your kind comments on social media, but in the, in the comment section, um, about the about these topics that we're talking about you know, yeah. I think like the message is lost on some people mm-hmm. uh, the context is lost it's that's lost on some people and you know you have to have ears to hear and some people don't have ears to hear at least someone out they're not they don't have ears to hear someone outside of their echo chamber uh, yeah. which is the tribalism that's really toxic at this point in our culture and that applies to every group I mean there are amazing open-minded, kind people within the intuitive eating community, within mm-hmm. the body positivity movement, and around any group, any carnivore movement, vegan movement, uh, keto movement, fasting movement. I mean, that's just within the wellness space, but yeah. then there's obviously like political side of things too. There's great people. And then there's militant people that are not very positive at all. And they're part of the problem in our culture. They're part of really the de- the the decay of free speech yeah, and the decay of having a, a, a variety, diverse conversation around people that aren't the same walk as you necessarily. Mm-hmm. And there's like a lack of this refinement that we used to have in our culture. It's like gone now. It's like any, any, any uh, person that's different than you, they're not just someone that has a different opinion. They are the scum of the earth, right? And and right. so and and the uh, political, it's one thing, right? We see it's happening, and it's super ugly on that level. Mm-hmm. But now it's also wellness. Like yeah. we can't even have a conversation about food and fasting. So yeah, it was weird because I wrote the book. I, I wrote Intuitive Fasting at the end of 2019, throughout 2020, and then came out February 2021. I thought this was going to be. I mean, because I know the words within the book. I know it was such a positive graceful, flexible approach Mm -hmm. to intermittent fasting. And it's born out of my clinical experience for the past 12 years. I thought there was really nothing uh, controversial about it or offensive because it really isn't a controversial or offensive book at all. But it's so, um, to me, it was almost like a, I I was aware of what was happening on social media with different things, but it was really in a way I'm very thankful and grateful to have gone through it myself to see how much things can be spun, how much 
people can be misrepresented and twisted. Well, I mean, talk about literally judging a book by its cover. None of those people in, in the intuitive eating community ever read the book, but it was very triggering and offensive because the idea that fasting could be intuitive was very triggering for them. Yeah. But look, it's a conversation about metabolic flexibility. Anybody within our space is going to tell, tell, know what I'm talking about here. Yeah. And mindfulness and using intermittent fasting as a mindfulness practice. This is nothing new. Uh, this is just a physiological, we're talking about the health side of, of a metabolic flexibility and how you have proper satiety signaling and blood sugar balance. So your body will be more, you'll be more aware of what your body loves and what your body hates, i.e. intuition. But also it's an, a conversation about mindfulness and how we should eat and fast more mindfully and, and, and look uh, introspectively of what's serving us and what's sabotaging us. Mm. So it's, that's not a controversial conversation, but look, as I posted on my Instagram the other day, it was like just a thought that I had that was like the idea that eating and fasting in alignment with human physiology, the idea that that's offensive is really only offensive to the ego of a culture that is so divorced from its roots as a human race. That's a, a culture that is so addicted to food and addicted to being offended. And that's right. how I felt th throughout the release of the book. That's still how I feel. Yeah, it's cancel culture. You know, yeah. it, it's crazy. I mean, I'm 41, so I kind of grew up when it was uh, the political correctness was the thing. And now all of a sudden it's cancel culture. And if you have, it's like if you just have one little differing opinion, you're canceled, you know? And I've dealt with that a little bit in my community. I've, you know, I have a YouTube channel, I have my Instagram, and it grew out of me really just saying, wow, this is amazing that I have, I had all these health issues, all these gut issues, and now I don't have them anymore. So I would like to share with people. Oh, Hey, and I've been teaching yoga for over a decade and I don't fit the mold anymore of the vegan yoga teacher. I tried to do vegan yoga teacher and it was, it didn't work out well for me. Um, but you know, I started everything because of that. I, I had this, I want to help people. But now that I've kind of evolved and said, oh, you guys, I'm going to add some plants back in. I get some crazy hate from people. And I'm like, but don't you want to know kind of we're, we're not supposed to just stay the same and stay in the mm -hmm. same ideology forever. And right. You know, I get messages from people every single day who maybe do need to try different things. And, and if we stay stuck in the same ideology and the same dogma and the same echo chamber, we're doing the same thing as, as the people that were you yeah. know, ridiculous. The idea that people can't evolve or people can't change their minds, that people can't ask questions or want to learn more yeah. um, and just experiment with things. The, that is like so anathema to that sort of mindset that's coming out in, in our culture today. It's so unhealthy. And honestly, it will be our undoing. It'll be culturally, yeah. it'll be our undoing because our free speech will be degraded to oh, the yeah. point where it won't be existed. There will be word police and thought police and censorship. It's just really ugly. I mean, the, the idea, and it's very ironic for me since we're talking about this, the people when that was coming out and look, let me just put this into perspective and context. There was not a overwhelming majority of positivity about the book. I mean, the, we, we hit the New York times and like, there was a positive people that read the book actually love it. It's, it's amazing. But if we're talking about the really loud, toxic <laughs> tribal trolls, then it's, it's interesting to me that they're the ones when you look on their social media handles, like their profiles, they're the ones that are advocating tolerance. They're the one advocating yeah. Oh, being open-minded they're the ones like that are really 
talk all this, these talking points, but that's, it's so fake. It's like, it yeah. is not real. There's no real kindness involved because mm-hmm. it's not real kindness when you're only nice to people that agree with you. Right. That's, or, or, and you're so quick to misunderstand and misrepresent somebody that's intolerance. That's being close-minded. It's everything yes. that they hate. They yes. are what they hate. Yeah. And that's ultimately a human condition too. It's like when someone's so seething in that toxic negativity, they become what they hate in others. Yeah. And I, you know, some of the craziest comments I've gotten over the years that I've had this, you know, carnivore yogi page out, which I know is very like, you see it and it's kind of like, oh God, really? (laughs) She's putting that out there. But some of the meanest comments and the most hateful ones are from people in the yoga community. And I actually have it so that if you comment underneath my posts, you cannot comment the word namaste because people <laughs> were leaving the, the meanest comments and putting namaste at the end. And so I actually have that as like a blocked word on my account now, which is not ironic. Though. So messed. It's so messed I mean, up. The, even the word namaste and like what right. that represents and you're right. somehow appropriating and and, and using that word in such a negative way. I mean, they don't even yeah. know what it means. They don't, right. li- that's not living namaste. That's not, oh boy, people, man, people <laughs> practice what you teach, please, right. at least try to. Yeah, exactly. And then it turns away people that can be helped. And again, that's, I know that's what you do. That's what you've done all this time is you've just really wanted to help people through your work and through your messaging. So I appreciate it, you know, just so much. And if we, Uh, don't present that kindness to all, even to the people that we disagree with, then Mm -hmm. that message is just totally lost that, that, that it's just not going to (laughs) happen. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, There's a, there's a breakdown of conversations, a breakdown of empathy, a breakdown of kindness, a breakdown of, of going outside your own box. And and we, I think we need to restore it. So I'm, I'm glad I went through the book really, you know, it's in, in the scheme of life, it's just a small thing, but it was really uh, a cool thing in hindsight to go through it and under and and use that as a mindfulness practice of yeah of non-resistance of acceptance of of empathy and and awareness of what yeah. or what, what our culture is right now absolutely absolutely so speaking of the book you know this is about metabolic flexibility correct this is about mm-hmm. getting more healthy with our metabolism could you talk about that just a little bit sure so my um day job, 11 hours a day, 10 and a half, 11 hours a day, I'm consulting people via webcam, like you mentioned. So I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago. And that's never changed. So I'm in my little bubble talking to people like we're talking now, looking at labs and getting, I I deal a lot with people with autoimmunity and different inflammatory issues, different metabolic, hormonal problems, things like chronic fatigue syndrome, Lyme disease, mold toxicity, really complex stuff. So they are very well-read people. They're extremely erudite because they've had to be, they've immersed themselves because they're not getting answers in the conventional system. So I have to be on my game uh, as far as the clinical side of things. So just to give you perspective on what I'm used to seeing um, and what I, a tool within the functional medicine toolbox is intermittent fasting. It's an amazing tool to, to do lots of things, but at the heart of it, it's the, the framework of gaining metabolic flexibility. So it's about the most people when they're stuck in a state of inflammation, of gut issues, of hormonal problems, blood sugar issues, they're in some semblance of metabolic inflexibility or metabolic rigidity. So fasting is this 
analogy that I use in the book is the proverbial yoga class for your metabolism. So if someone's metabolically inflexible, they go to, if they, let's just say that, that their, their muscles are inflexible, they go to the, to a yoga class and they would say, what the heck yoga is super unnatural. How could do any human do do this? There's something wrong with yoga. Yoga is not for me, but really it's not yoga's fault. It's your inflexibility. Your hamstrings are tight. Your core is weak or whatever we're talking about here. That's many people find themselves that when they're coming into a, tr- a place of trying intermittent fasting out, they'll say, oh, intermittent fasting is not for me. Well, actually, no, you may have done the wrong type of fast. You may have done too much too soon because you are so inflexible. Mm-hmm. That's like going to an advanced yoga class when you're not ready for it. Yep. So you have to start off with that beginner stop and then lean into it and progress. And so there's this ebbing and flowing, vacillating, expanding and contracting eating and fasting window experience that I built for the protocol and intuitive fasting to just like yoga, gain a centeredness, gain a rootedness in your body. Uh, and that's what we're doing. We're do, we're building a centeredness and rootedness through building metabolic flexibility. So you have proper satiety signaling, proper blood sugar balance, proper gut brain access communication, lowered inflammation levels, pretty better brain function, all that stuff that I love seeing with my patients. I wanted to sort of show them the science and the practical, like real life, how do you do this stuff? Because it's not a matter of saying, well, fasting is not good for women or this isn't good for this big group of people. It's like, no, first of all, who are we talking about? Because every woman is different and B, how is she doing it? Right. So it should be this, 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 this intuition of learning about what works for your body. And just like with yoga, as you gain metabolic flexibility, you've gained health, you will, it'll become your own practice. It'll become intuitive and you'll be able to evolve that practice as your health evolves. And that's the conversation I'm having in the book. Yeah. And you're talking with someone who is kind of brand new, who is a sugar burner. They have not really ever tried this type of lifestyle before. And you really do help them start off. What do you do like a 12, 12 to start off with, and then work them up eventually to like one meal a day. Yeah, exactly. So, but uh, there's four weeks, each week is a different type of time compressed feeding window. So you're not doing caloric restriction. You're still eating ample amounts of food in their specific window. So I, um, I find that to be one of the more accessible, approachable, sustainable things for people to do on a day, day-to-day life. You don't ever have to stop doing it. And as you get your a rhythm on what, what your body loves and what your body doesn't love, you'll have experimented with different types of fasting as well. And you will have improved all those physiological things like blood sugar balance, satiety signaling, all that stuff that you'll be able to have the art of what works best for your body. So yeah, week one is 12-12, which look, it coming from the fasting world or the keto world, which I've been in for a long time. Um, that's a very unsexy way to do intermittent fasting. Like they, the, the, the pros would be like, what the heck? This is not even a thing. <laughs> 12, 12, what? But it, it's important for many people. And it's even more important. It's, it's important also for the self-professed pro, because mm-hmm. sometimes it's loosening up and backing up a bit and the variability, which is the, this is the big part of the conversation that I'm having in the book, macro variability and eating and fasting variability keeps things flexible. So yeah. you don't always feel like le- doing less fasting is like weak or less fasting is like less effective. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you need a bigger refeeding window and it shakes up leptin and shakes up the thyroid hormone and shakes up the gut microbiome, which is just what you need to move past that plateau that you're stuck in. So don't always think that more is better. So a lot of times people are asking me on social media, well, I'm already doing 18 hours or 16 hours. Mm -hmm. Do I have to go back to 12, 12? 
look, do what you want. But I would advocate, yes, go back to 12, 12, yeah. experiment with it, see where your body is, shake things up. There's a lot of, there's a, there's a far reaching cascade of things that will happen when you do that sometimes. So yeah, it's 12, what week one's a 12, 12, it's a body reset fast. Then we go to metabolic recharge, which is about an 18 hour. And then week three, it's a non-consecutive every other day, almost OMAD approach. It's a little bit looser than a more strict OMAD to allow a bigger eating window. So easier on the gut, better on mm. metabolism and digestion. And then week four, we open back up to 12-12. So it's constantly these vacillating windows mm. that allows us to, uh, like that yoga class, to gain that flexibility only on a metabolic level. Yeah, and I love that you talk about the need for variation because the trap that I fell into, I've been through a lot in my journey with uh, keto and fasting. And I actually had Dr. Mindy Pels on my podcast at the beginning of January, because I had stopped fasting completely for a year. I just went totally off of it. Like I said, I'd 40, I'm 41. So I was doing too much of it all the time. Like every day I had to eat in a four hour window and extended fasting. And I had pretty much started putting myself into an early menopause. And uh, I see this happening more and more now that keto is so much more popular. And I would love to talk with you about this, that, you know, how much you see of this and how someone would, <laughs> what I did was probably not the best thing. I gained 20 pounds and I started eating more. I stayed still low carb. Um, but I quit doing all fasting and I just had to eat more, but I got my cycle back. I'm ovulating regularly again. So I completely reversed up out of menopause, which is yeah. awesome. Yeah. But unfortunately, this is a situation that ha is happening all the time is always keto, always fasting, always OMAD. All, and then either people are gaining weight from doing that, which you were like, really, you're gaining weight in your OMAD every day, or they're just totally stuck and they still have 30, 50 pounds to lose. So I would mm -hmm. love to hear you. I know I just loaded a lot on you yeah. there, but I'd love to, <laughs> to talk through that a little bit with you. Totally. I mean, it's a, it's a major part of the conversation in intuitive fasting because it's a major part of what I see clinically is mm -hmm. that more is not always equal to better uh, or, or needed for, for long-term health. Look, sometimes more therapeutically at the beginning is very effective, um, more of lots of good things, right? But that doesn't mean that what worked and served you and, and was a thing for you that was effective for you at the beginning of your journey or at some point of your journey for that season it served you, it doesn't mean that it's always the thing, something you needed to be doing long-term. So I see tools like being in ketosis longer term uh, or for a period of time consistently, I should say, or deeper fasts therapeutically for a time to start to untangle, let's say chronic inflammatory cascades or uh, immune dysregulation or detoxification pathway issues or mitochondrial problems or brain problems like that. You, sometimes you need to be deeper in, in these states, these therapeutic states for a time, but then how do you transition from a into a maintenance mode whenever you got amazing health benefits from it mm -hmm. where what does the transition look like where you can still uh tap into this but what's good for you long term because i'll tell you what i mean many times where i see this is i i as a functional medicine practitioner as a clinician have to prioritize things that need to be that need to be happening and so oftentimes many people fall into this category the gi issues the chronic inflammation issues the immune mediated issues take precedence. And mm -hmm. what you have to deal with that, or at least start to significantly create resilience there 
but what's good for the gut is not necessarily good for hormones long-term. Yeah. And we have to find that, okay, let's get out of the woods. Let's get your head above water. But then what is the the balancing act look like longer term. So with, I mean, that's a major part of intuitive fasting, clean carb cycling. What does that look like? Who yeah. needs to do that? Some people need to do it more. Some people need to do it less. So these are all tools within our toolbox. And some people, not, the, the tools are, are cyclical and or the tools are seasonal within our life, meaning that we can go back to things that that maybe we hadn't done in a while, but we need to revisit it again. So that's that's how I see these things because that's how I see it when I'm implementing them with patients. Over, I'm spending a year and a half, two years, two years with most of my patients. Wow. So you're really able to explore seasons of somebody's life and how are you integrating these things. So yeah, it's it's that's a good point that you brought. And I think that people need to realize that if you're coming from a carnivore standpoint or carnivore-ish or lower carb or keto standpoint or a fasting standpoint, something that is, um, that's not that something that's, let's just say moderating your carbohydrates from Mm -hmm. real whole whole food sources or less fasting, that doesn't mean what you did wasn't good for you. And it doesn't right. mean you're a bad carnivore person or whatever. Like that's the diet, like militant tri- tribal stuff that we're talking about. It's not actually healthy. Then you right. become obsessive and orthorexic about healthy foods. I hope you guys are enjoying this episode as much as I did recording it. As I mentioned in the beginning, Dr. Will Cole is just such an incredibly cool guy. I wanted to take a little break to pause and thank you guys for all of your support with this podcast. It is pretty new and I've really, really enjoyed connecting with you guys. So if you are on social media, please do take a screenshot of this podcast, share it, please tag me. I would love to hear from you. You can always send me a message over on Instagram. It's at carnivore.yogi. I'm pretty active over there. And so I would absolutely love to hear from some of you guys. And if there's a guest that you want me to interview, also please feel free to reach out to me, email me, because I do want to keep this going. I am really enjoying interacting with you guys and continuing to create these episodes every week. And would love to bring you people that maybe you haven't heard from before and that you're interested in hearing from. So please do feel free to send me that message. Thanks again to Thrive for sponsoring this episode of the Carnivore Yogi Podcast. For your 50% off link, just go to the information section below this episode and let me know how it goes. Feel free to message me with that. I get people that message me about their Thrive results every single day and I'm fine with it. I don't mind helping. So if you are curious about, uh, if you have a question about your results, please feel free to shoot me a message and I'm be happy to help you out. All right, guys, let's get back to the episode. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, orthorexia is a major problem within this, these communities. Yes, big because- time. It's, it's, you end up fearing like vegetables and right. fruits yeah. and look for, if you're an alpha biohacker, that's your bent in life. Maybe these things won't create orthorexia for you, but that's not how, not everybody's wired like that. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's a biohacker. Some people just want to feel good. Some people yep. just want to like do something that's good for their body. That makes them feel good. That makes them healthy. And I think that these things can be abused unintentionally because you think you have to do this all the time or, and you're somehow hurting your body if you are in this, in, aren't in this state. So how do we 
translate this information where context matters and you really can do this in a sustainable, realistic way and have a healthier, more balanced relationship with these things. Mm -hmm. So that's always, that's really the conversation of intuitive fasting because that is always the conversation that I'm having with my patients to start to find a healthier, more sustainable relationship with these things. Yeah. And do you think people can actually, I know we have insulin resistant, obviously with carbs, but do you think there's like a a reverse of that where people do keto carnivore for too long and then they're just so intolerant to like it how did how do you think that works on the metabolism i do think that this and it doesn't mean that it's permanent it's going to be short-lived because the body's not used to it so the microbiome the cell membrane the receptor sites are all not used to these carbohydrates so yeah i mean leaning and leaning and waking your body up to metabolizing different things or or waking up to handling carbohydrates, even in whole food sources is sometimes mm-hmm. a good thing. Cause you're right, bringing two things in too much uh, or your body's not adjusted to it. That's gonna raise insulin resistance, at least for a time. So yeah, I, I do, I think it's a permanent problem where people that are in ketosis longer term have to be super fearful. And that's a lot of times what the plant-based community will bring about them. They'll bring mm-hmm. about that fear. I don't, I'm not going to over-dramatize it because I don't think it's a long-term problem. Yeah, uh, It's an adaptation that will, your body will readjust and yeah. just be gentle with yourself. But I'm more of like a middle of the road opinion. Yeah, saying, yeah, to maintain metabolic flexibility, I think many people are going to want to consider bringing some clean carbohydrates at least cyclically, at least periodically uh, in, in their life. But look, we have to look at what our goals are, what our specific issues are, because there are some people that the state of ketosis is keeping them, it's managing symptoms for them. And yeah. the, the pros way outweigh the cons. And they know when they go out of ketosis, they don't feel as good. Yeah. So it's just about individually checking in with your body, checking in with your goals. And that's what I'm talking about intuition. Like how can you use food and fasting as a meditation to learn about your body? Mm. So I know some people that you would look at them and say, yeah, they don't have to be in ketosis longer term, but they know for their body, when they go out of ketosis, they don't feel as good. Their neurological symptoms come up, their inflammation levels come up and they're better off. They feel amazing in the state of ketosis. The next person does better with a cyclical approach. How do you use this tool that works for you long-term? That's really the the point of this, of all of this. Yeah. It can be really ultra confusing. You know, I've got a daughter who's 13 and she has non-speaking autism. She's a big part of my story of why I even care about health, why I even look into any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I think reading your very first book was like, I was trying to just figure out what do I need to do for her, for her diet. I didn't even care about me. Mm -hmm. Um, but she's someone who I put on a ketogenic diet over a year ago. She had these chronic ear infections, awful, awful, awful ear infections and, uh, would get them in April. They would last through to December. So I had her on super strict keto. She had zero ear infections last year. Now we're here, we are in spring and she's been back at school. And I think that they've been a little bit looser, allowing her to have some treats. And we've got the very first ear infection, you know, and I've kind of been like, well, maybe I should allow her to have a few things. You know, you get the mom guilt, the 13 year old girl who's Mm -hmm. already different. You know, she's already totally different than everyone else. I'm like, okay, but boom, as soon as I start allowing some of these foods in, she gets this awful ear infection and it's like, okay, well, you know, maybe that is a situation with her situation where 
to keep her inflammation under control, she may want to stay more in a ketogenic approach, you know? Yeah, great example. Yeah. So these are all individual decisions that people have to make for themselves or as parents, we need to be looking at these things. And, and, and I think that's where people like myself and people in functional medicine come in to really point the direction. Cause it is, I mean, Dr. Google is like this <laughs> immersive, <laughs> endless vortex of conflicting information. And we can substantiate any agenda we want to with a click of a button, or we can substantiate our worst fears at the end of the button too, with all of these, um, oh, you yeah. know, alertist sort of things too. So it's about um, context and context matters, which is not very sexy either well, <laughs> in our culture. It's of, not, it's you know, not they want at the, all. They want the clickbait. They want the, yes, they want the for or against us. They don't understand there's a gray area. Most of life is a gray area with health and many other things. Definitely. And, you know, with her, I'm still working on gut healing. That's an, that's kind of another thing this year that I've had a big focus on and talking about on my channel and on my page. And I know that's something you work with on all your clients. And so mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, yeah, it could have been out of ketosis, but also we probably have more gut healing that we need to work on here. So um, could you talk a little bit about how you work with patients on gut healing? Yeah. Um, so the gut for people that are maybe newer to this conversation, I mean, it's a major part of human health. Um, our gut and brain brain are actually formed from the same fetal tissue. 95% <clears throat> of serotonin is made in the gut, stored in, stored in the gut. It's known as the second brain in, in the research. Um, 95% of serotonin is made in the gut. So we have to look at the second brain and the gut's influence on neurotransmitters and our mood and our energy levels and brain health. Um, from in many different ways, you know, in many different ways, even the microbiota, the, the all the colony forming units of good bacteria and the opportunistic and pathogenic bacteria, their actual influence of neurotransmitters and brain expression. Uh, it's also home to 75, 80% of the immune system. So when you're dealing with inflammatory problems, which inflammation is a product of the immune system mm -hmm. or autoimmune issues, which are immune mediated, obviously, you have to look at where the predominance of the immune system resides, which is in the gastrointestinal system. And many of our hormones are converted in the gut as well. So people that are dealing with thyroid issues, 20% of T4 is converted into to T3 in the gut, 80% uh, in the liver. So we have to look at the gut microbiome diversity from con for conversion of hormones as well. Um, and obviously digestion. Many people have digestive issues with constipation, bloating, diarrhea, looser stools, um, GI pain. Uh, th these are all the far reaching implications of gut health. So when I'm talking about gut health, it is not just digestion, even though that's certainly important for many people um, to optimize, but it's so much more than that. It's your brain, it's your immune system, it's your inflammation levels, it's hormones, it's all that stuff. So um, it's a central part of what my work is. And it takes time. You know, yeah. we have a lot of kids on the spectrum that takes time. It's like people with autoimmunity, it takes time. It's just not, you're going to see changes in their studies to show that you're, you're going to start seeing positive improvements on either a lab standpoint or how the person feels or both pretty early on. But there, it's one thing to get stability and move in the right direction and feel better. It's another thing to create resilience. So stability and resilience takes time to build. So once you're out of that initial, like get out of the red alert woods area, then it's like, how do you build a firm foundation where you don't quote unquote pay for something if you go off yeah. of what works for you? Or if you don't, if you're, you're able to handle a little bit more flexibility there, 
you can pivot from your center, but you have to build a center first. You have to build a group of things that work for you first to be able to pivot. So that takes time. And that's why I said most of my, my patients, I'm with them for about a year and a half to two years. So that's, I find most people with autoimmunity and inventory problems, people on the spectrum, people with other uh, neurological symptoms is that they take about a year and a half to two years to find their sweet spot. They're either close to optimal function or they're like somewhere, whatever their body's capable of doing based on when they meet me. But that that's kind of my experience. The gut's a major part of that. That's not to say that gut is the only part of that. And I think that's the other side of the conversation that's important is that some, especially people that are interested in health and wellness, they hear gut health, gut health, gut health, gut health. We've been talking for a long time more or less, they know that's important, but it's not only that. So I, I want to be very clear that this should not be myopic and say, this is this panacea. This is this magic thing that if you do this, all your problems will go away. <laughs> it'll, it'll cure cancer and like cure poverty. And like, it'll be the one and done thing. It's a piece of the puzzle. And for some people, it's a major piece of the puzzle, but it's not the only piece of the puzzle. Mm. So that's why we have to keep an open mind to other components to why you feel the way that you do. Yeah. Yeah. And most of my audience, I think, well, not most, but a big part of my audience is people that have done carnivore because like me, yeah. I started doing carnivore, not because I wanted to just do carnivore. It was that I was a yoga teacher who couldn't practice yoga because my joints were so inflamed at age 39. And I was like, this doesn't makes sense. And I had to sleep on the couch because I had the worst IBS. And I was like, I'm not going to keep my husband up with this. And so when I found, and this is a lot of my audience, I found carnivore diet. And finally I was back on the yoga mat within just a couple of weeks. And I was back, you know, didn't have the IBS and all the mm -hmm. problems with my digestion any longer. Yeah. And I think that it helps people in that way, but where I'm kind of at right now, my journey is like, a lot of people, yeah, sure. If you want to do that and you want your carnivore membership card and you, you want to do that whole deal, cool. But a lot of people want to start adding foods in. And I don't know necessarily that just doing that diet is going to be enough for most people. It wasn't for me. There were, there were more things I had to do in order to start reintroducing foods. So what is your take on that? Do you do carnivore with any of your patients? How do you approach someone in that kind of situation? Yeah. Um, so I, as I mentioned, like these tools are within my functional medicine toolbox. So there's a time and place. There's a context back to that word again, for all of this thing, these things. And I've talked about it many times over the years. Uh, I use the a clean, well-formulated carnivore diet, nutrient dense carnivore diet for people that need it. And I mean, I we're mutual friends with Paul Saladino. Like we've talked about this at length. There's a time and place for that. He uses it more from a lifestyle standpoint. Mm -hmm. I use it more from an ultimate elimination diet approach to untangle these overreactions. Cause I'm dealing, I deal a lot with people with reactions to just about everything, everything. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, that's, it's a, that is one of several tools within the toolbox for people that have reactions to a lots of stuff. Um, and then it's, what is the long game? What does the end game look like? It's not necessarily to be carnivore for the rest of your life. Um, like you said, could it work for some people? Yes, there, it's it definitely can be a tool just like long-term ketosis can be a tool for some people and the benefits outweigh any negatives. But most people, most people are going to want to transition, want to or have to transition out of that. Either just from a flexibility standpoint, a variety standpoint, they're bored with it, they, they want some more flexibility in their life 
or they have to, or meaning that they're, they need more variety or they've mm-hmm. built a center, but they need to have some variability there to maintain how good, how good they, how they feel. And like I mentioned earlier, what's good for the gut isn't necessarily good for the hormones longer term. So mm. you're going to have to, to, after you've created that foundation, pivot from that to maintain those good results or move past that plateau. So typically what it looks like, and look, reintroduction for somebody that's already had reactions and they've calmed it down tremendously, but they're not a hundred percent yet. The timing of reintroduction is important because it's not like 90 days and like everybody needs to transition out of it. It could be months. It could mm-hmm. be years for some people to really, when is my time to transition out of it? Cause some people will look at someone else and they'll say, well, I, they did it at this time. So I'm going to do it this time or I'm kind of bored. I want some variety here or I'm feeling like my body needs it. And they just, they do reintroduction too fast, too soon. (laughs) And it's not good. Right. It Mm -hmm. it can Mm -hmm. cause flare up. So part of that, and that's why reintroduction is so important. And this is part of the conversation that I'm having. I had in in the inflammation spectrum in my second book, because sometimes it's your microbiome is not used to eating something. Mm -hmm. So you have to differentiate between, is it a true food reaction or is it just the microbiome adjusting? So that's why you have to really bring things in slow and methodically. So that way your body can adjust because really anybody, if you haven't had something for a while and you have lots of it, your body is going to have to have an adjustment period. That doesn't mean you have a food sensitivity, food reactivity to it. But a lot of times people do have food sensitivities and reactivity. So we have to know what are the real problems and what aren't. So reintroduction is really important, but we totally phase them out of that stop starting with like low FODMAP Mm -hmm. cooked pureed soups and stews and sort of like a gaps like approach for a while. Um, And it can be arduous, but it's sustainable. So we work them through that so they can have a variety of foods. Not everybody has to be that meticulous, but a lot of our patients do. Yeah. I mean, I see, I'm friends with a lot of people in the carnivore community. I follow a lot of them and Occasionally I'll see someone, oh, I went out to eat and I don't even know what was used on my steak. I don't know what seasoning it was, but today I'm swollen and I can barely move. My joints are killing me. And I just think like, well, I don't know that that's really a good thing. Like I, I really wish for you that you could have more freedom to be able to go have a steak somewhere or go have a meal somewhere and not wake up all swollen like that. So you know, part of me, I know there's a lot of people that say they can do carnivore for forever and it's great, but you know, that's not sustainable for a lot of people in that they may want to go out and have a meal and not be all inflamed like that. So do you think, I mean, it's obviously a person by person basis, but majority of the time, if someone is going to have a reaction like that, do you think it's that their microbiome is just not used to it or are they actually still sensitive to whatever it was that they had? It depends because they both look like a duck and one's a duck and one's not. And yeah. it's like, to me, it, it's, if they're having like oils and the way that oils are cooked oh, yeah. or spices like that, that's very common, right? When people eat out, but it's like, I see sometimes it's just the person hasn't had it in a while and there's an adjustment period and they're it's like really shocking to their, the gastrointestinal system or whatever, if it gets some sort of upregulation of inflammation, but so I would definitely want to control the variable as much as possible to suss out the specifics of it. Is it just a uh, reintroduction issue where the body will calm down and be fine? Or is it something where we're seeing repeated offenses against this one thing? Um, so there's not a clear cut answer on that. What I would say 
just to give you some food for thought, and it's a bad pun in this conversation, but gives give you some give someone some some thought here is what is upstream here. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes we're having these conversations with food reactions, right? And I'm part of that conversation as <laughs> things that I've written and talked about over the years, but is that truly the upstream issue? Like, is that body's food reaction or the GI issues or the gut healing quote unquote thing? Is that really the ultimate upstream issue? Cause I'll tell you what, sometimes that I see, and that's what I was saying. The gut is a piece of the puzzle, but not the totality of everybody's reasoning. Sometimes there's a reason why the immune system so overreacted to these things. So keep an open mind that for some people, not everybody, that the re- reason why the body has no wiggle room and the body's reacting to all these things is the guts a downstream issue to something even or being influenced by something else. So when you look at the world of mold, Mm. mycotoxins, Lyme disease, co-infections, other chronic infections like this, viral infections too, sometimes that is overflowing. Like I have my bone broth mason jar here. The people, their mason, mason jar is overflowing. And they empty it a little bit by going off of foods that are reactive. But every time they go to eat out and there's like canola oil or whatever, a nightshade spice, it's overflowing. Hmm. It's like, well, yeah, you, you, you emptied it and you filled it back up. But why is it so full to begin with? Yes. Sometimes it's not the cayenne pepper. There's other things going on that's causing you to have such little resilience capacity. Uh. So keep an open mind that these other chronic infections that are causing this very little wiggle room capacity are really at play here. Cause when, then when you empty the bucket or the mason jar tremendously, when you deal with the, whatever mycotoxin and viral issue, pathogen mold thing, whatever it is for the person, then the cayenne pepper, it's going to go up a little bit, but it's not going to overflow. Yeah. So, so you think people could have underlying, obviously there could be some issue with mold that they've got toxicity in the body. They could have a gut infection that they don't know about. Um, H. pylori, H. pylori. Yeah, a hominid, like the other pathogens that we find. Yeah. So it's like this constant immune stressor that's not being dealt with. And mm-hmm. carnivore isn't really directly dealing with it. It's creating a better environment because it's helping mm-hmm. your immune system handle things and it's lowering inflammation levels, but it's ultimately not fully dealing with the upstream irritant. So you're creating, it's like almost like... Um, it's not the perfect analogy, but it's, it's kind of like being low FODMAP with SIBO where mm-hmm. it's like, are you ultimately going to deal with the dysbiosis with being low FODMAP for the rest of your life? Not necessarily. So yeah. many people will get, then they'll bring their FODMAPs up and they're right in the same spot they were in or worse. Well, you didn't deal with the upstream issue of why you had the reaction in the first place. The mm-hmm. goal wasn't to be low FODMAP for the rest of your life necessarily. The goal is to deal with the problem that's causing the SIBO, the FODMAP intolerance. I think, I think a lot of, not everybody, but a lot of people within the carnivore community, they're in that same boat. They're creating this environment that's better, but what's the end game look like? Like, mm-hmm. why are we having this problem in the first place? Got it. So in that case, they would need to work with someone like you and actually get to some deeper testing to see what the heck is going on, right? Yeah, that's needed sometimes. Uh, look, and if you are re, I'm talking about the people that are better, but not where they need to be. Mm-hmm. There are many people where just doing what we're talking about, doing these lifestyle things without a doctor is going to completely resolve your problems. Then that's amazing. Like, like that, I'm not talking about this people. I'm talking about the people that are better, but they're stuck and they're, mm-hmm. and they're not able to 
moved past this and they've been at this for a long time. Yeah. Those people, yeah, I do think labs would illuminate the missing pieces to the puzzle. Yeah, those are the people I'm getting a lot of because I've been around for a while and I'm I present as a non-dogmatic person that if you have a problem, I'm not going to shut you down and say, well, just go and eat more meat and carnivore harder and fast harder. And -hmm. then you'll be better because a lot of people do get told that message and that really sucks. Mm -hmm. Um, So I get a lot of people that come to me who have had serious autoimmune issues and they've gotten tremendous amount of relief from carnivore, but then they're just stuck. Either they've got you know, still an extra 30 pounds or still, if they're not super careful, they'll flare. I mean, most of my people are women who just can't lose weight no matter what they do. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, let me go interview some more people for you guys. (laughs) That's kind of where I'm at with the whole thing, because from what I'm seeing, you're not eating a huge calorie surplus. You're not doing something that would cause you to hang on to that much weight. So there's gotta be something deeper going on. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I would say. So those are the realm of things that I explore to see what are the other things that are deeper that are going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I, on a kind of a different topic, I would love to hear, because I know you talked with Paul um, about plant anti-nutrients, because I know a lot of, and I've read your recipes and um, that's kind of how I used to eat it, just tons of plants, but you know, the whole plant anti-nutrient thing is big right now. Do you think that that is improper gut microbiome or overhype or what are your thoughts on the on the anti-nutrients um it depends going back to the resilience capacity here so um the it's i I think when you when you look at it first of all i i think for the average person it is over dramatized and it it could uh create unintended consequences of orthorexia and things like this Mm -hmm. i really do think a lot of times if you're looking for a problem, you know, the human mind will make it mm-hmm. like it, 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 the stress and anxiety around foods. So oftentimes it's not the food, it's the stress and anxiety and obsession about the food. That's the problem. And I'm talking about vegetables and fruits mainly, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the, obviously we know that a lot of times people have problems with gluten containing grains, but even yeah. gluten-free grains, I think can be lumped in that too, mm-hmm. that it's like, well, is it, sometimes the stress and the shame around the foods worse than the food itself and the, and the inflammation that causes from the stress. Um, so my agenda as a functional medicine practitioner is what does your body love? What does your body hate? We realize we're all different. So, and, and as we evolve, things will change too for us as well. So I wanted to, and in all the books there, all the recipes, all three of the books that I've written, ketotarian, the inflammation spectrum and intuitive fasting, they're all omnivore recipes, but, and they all would be considered with a few exceptions in intuitive fasting, considered a paleo, they're all paleo uh, ways of eating. Um, But there's definitely vegan keto, vegetarian keto, and pescatarian keto, and and, um, ketotarian, then there's many different levels of that in the inflammation spectrum with omnivore options, and uh, same with intuitive fasting, but I brought in soaked, uh, uh, pressure cooked grains and beans in uh, intuitive fasting from a clean carb cycling standpoint to give more variety there basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know patients that have problems with beans. I know patients that have problems with gluten-free grains. I, as a clinician, I know there's people that are not going to do good with all of these things, yeah. but that's bio-individuality. And as I'm writing a book, I'm saying, look, 
there are food reactions and that's what the inflammation spectrum and second book's all about is to find that out for yourself. But I still wanted to give the people that don't have the problems with these foods, some options for them uh, and uh, some variety. Uh, so, and I got that question a lot because I didn't include some of those foods in ketotarian. And a lot of times the people that needed clean carb cycling ideas or had were more plant-based, they wanted options. So I wanted, I wanted them to have some varieties of how to do these things. And I think with the plant anti-nutrients, pressure cooking beans uh, or buying things that are already pressure cooked, soaking, uh, and I talk about soaking nuts and seeds in all the books because it is something that I find to be beneficial, that dramatically decreases anti-nutrients, mm. lactins, phytic acid, et cetera. So I, I find that that serves most people from a long-term health. With that said, I talk about the endocannabinoid gene variants and the different methylation gene variants in uh, the inflammation spectrum that I see clinically that some people are just more prone to be more sensitive to things like a higher lectin diet. Mm -hmm. So there's genetic reasons for some people that that's being triggered and amplified. They're more prone to these food sensitivities. They should be on a lower lectin diet and maybe avoid it entirely or at least minimize it dramatically. Um, that's true. And I would also say back to my earlier statement about food reactions, Maybe there's something else going on, like mycotoxins, mold, chronic Lyme disease, co-infections that's causing the reaction. And it's not a genetic thing. It's mm -hmm. just like overflowing mug thing yeah. that, that has to be dealt with. It's not poor old goji berry's fault. It's like there's other some massive problems going on that that's causing these issues. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think that it's hard for people and people can get really overwhelmed, myself included, of like, Oh crap. Now maybe I have a mold problem, you know, in my body right. that I need to deal with, or I'm, I live yeah. here in muggy ass Georgia, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's hard to find a house that doesn't have some kind of water damage or that you can't see. So it's like, I think people just get so overwhelmed by thinking about that. Um, yeah, I get that. Yeah. And then I, 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 I realize, yeah, you're right. And I don't want, but when I'm saying these things, it's not to, oh my gosh, now I have to worry about more things. He's adding more things to the list of what it could be and creating more disordered stress around your body and health. That's not the point of it. The point is if you deal with those root, root things and they may or not be an issue for you, the goal is, can you find more food peace long, longer term? Yes. Do you have to be constantly thinking about this? Can you increase your flexibility to food reactions. That's why I'm saying it. It's like the long-term, once you deal with it, you actually don't have to be so meticulous about every yeah. little food. Yeah. And that's what I want for people is just to not have to be freaking out about food all the time. And that's right. the one thing I see so much is just demonizing foods, making diet cults. And I think you and I both can agree that that is just incredibly unhealthy yeah. and bad for your health. You know, it is. It is very much. I like that term, diet cult. That's exactly what's going on right now. Yeah, it diet is. Diet cult. It's like yeah, a bunch I, of David Koresh's. <laughs> yeah, I did a video this morning saying that I was no longer strict carnivore and I've already lost like, I lost a ton of subscribers by putting that out. But the message was like, you know, this, I'm just being transparent with people that I'm yeah. adding some foods back in. I'm enjoying mm -hmm. it. As mm -hmm. long as I'm going slow, it's going well. And I think it's important that I'm transparent with people like, yeah, yeah, I did this and it helped tremendously, but now I want, I just want to change. I want to add more things in. And as yeah. long as I can do that in a healthy way, 
you know, and for, I'm sure I've lost a bunch of subscribers, but I've also had tons of people thanking me. Yeah. You're going to get more people in the long run and people you want to be around with anyways, you want, yeah. you want to be interacting with. Yeah. It's definitely true. I mean, look, it's similar to the vegan person and that's yeah. an influencer <laughs> vegan and they have a piece of fish and it's like, they're like getting death threats. Yeah. The, the carnivore people aren't as bad as that. They'll just unfollow you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, some of them will leave you a nice goodbye yeah. message also. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's <laughs> but- true. But no, probably no death threats from the carnivore community, I would say. No, none yet. None yet. So <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, knock on wood, we'll stay yeah. away from those. But yeah, well, I know you have to get on to patients because like you said, you see patients all day. This is, it's so cool to get to actually talk to a doctor who sees patients. And that is so valuable to me and to my audience. So um, my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, you guys, I've got the book here, Intuitive Fasting. I've read it and made all kinds of notes in it. So I will make sure to link that in the show notes for you to check it out. I think it's a great book. And um, thanks again for being with me here today. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode. I have really enjoyed connecting with these different guests and also with you guys. So as I mentioned in the mid roll, please take a screenshot. Please do tag me. Please send me a message. I do want to be helpful. I do want to be a resource for you guys and somebody that you feel you can interact with and talk to if you have questions. So next week I have Dr. Stephanie Estima on the podcast who I really think you guys are going to enjoy. We talk a lot about hormones, more hormones. I know I had Dr. Anna Kabeca on not so long ago to talk about hormones. She was more on the perimenopause, menopause side. This is more for women of reproductive age of how to exercise, how to eat during your cycle. And so I found it to be a very, very fascinating conversation. She is full of energy and I really, really enjoyed talking with her. So that will be coming next week. All right, guys, as always, tag me, message me with a screenshot of this episode, and I will make sure to repost you and give you a shout out. And I will talk with you guys in the next episode.